You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was Add 10 Gallons? Add 10 Gallons. My first thought was, we got to put Axe Chill in there. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> Trucks on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L dot com. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We're back again. As always, I'm Josh, joined by Paul and Joey. Paul, what's up, man? Oh, dude, love being in the studio. Second favorite time of the week. <laughs> Heard that. Heard that. Yeah, and, and we might get into some personal stuff here later, but I just want to throw this out there for all the ladies who've been sliding into Paul's DMs for years. Man's <laughs> off the market. You're going to have to find yourself a new piece of game to hunt. That's it, boys. Got this hardware. Bling, bling. Watch out. Did you yeah. get one of those like uh, stretchy rubber ones too? No, but I need to because I'm already digging this one up in the gym. It's mm-hmm. only been four days. Yeah. <laughs> already got, already got, don't tell the woman. I already got scratches all over it. Nice. Hard on equipment. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Joey? Joey's been off the market for a while, by the way. So if you're still sliding in Joey's DMs, you're, you're barking <laughs> up the wrong tree as well. Um, <laughs> but Joey, what's up, man? How's fatherhood part two? It's good. Uh, exhausting, but good. Um, speaking of you know, Paul's wedding, I went up there for that. Paul had a beautiful wedding. If you've never been to an Albanian wedding, it's uh it's an experience it was it was pretty wild it was a lot of fun though it's a party once the dancing starts it does not stop yeah and it pretty much starts like the father-daughter dance and i thought it was gonna be like a normal american i've been to one albanian wedding before so i knew the dancing was wild but it was her brothers so the father-daughter dance there was not albanian because he married uh, a ukrainian girl and so the father-daughter dance was about to get started and instead of doing like this traditional like waltz where you're holding your parent, nah, they went right into this Albanian like line dance. I don't even know how you describe it. It's not really line dancing, but it's like this, uh, I don't know, this chain dance mm. that they do holding hand to hand. And it started with them too. They went ham and it did not stop for hours yeah. and hours and hours. And the place was just rocking. It was crazy. Dang. Okay. Okay. What, how many are we talking about here? What was the total? We had 100 people. So at uh, any time, you'd have 50, 60 people going at it on the floor. And, you know, as an American guy who wasn't trained in these rhythms and these dances that they're doing, I'm in the chain because I'm forced to because I'm marrying into the family. So I'm forcing this chain. My feet are going every direction. <laughs> none of them at the right beat. None at the right, none at the right time. And... I couldn't figure it. It took me, I did figure it after like two hours. Uh, but like, I warned like all my friends. I was like, hey, this is coming. And when it comes, you got to get out there. And there's no way to like really prepare. And because when it goes, it goes off. There's a different kind of energy in the room because none of the dancing is like grinding on your partner at a club. It's not that kind of thing. It's, it's a completely different energy. And so I told him, like, hey, it's coming y'all get ready so then when it came i dragged them out there but they had the same experience i did where none of us knew what we were doing fish out of water (laughs) dude one guy had (laughs) one guy had was like doing so bad like the old lady that was holding his hand like let go of his hand 
and like reached across him and grabbed the person he was holding in front of himself and they just like knocked him out of line <laughs> he was the weakest link they kicked him out. exactly <laughs> goodbye so all my friends left they abandoned me like after like an an hour i re- looked around i was like man i am struggling like let me find some other people to struggle next to and they were gone <laughs> they were outside playing a cornhole and drinking america <laughs> I, was, I got out of line and i went outside i started yelling at them i was like how could you do this to me <laughs> i'm struggling so hard and y'all abandoned me so they came back in yeah i did not partake in that dancing i just drank whiskey with bob and jack and we went to smoke a cigar <laughs> there you go yeah, I tried to get Joey out there, and he looked at me like I was crazy. He's like, yeah, no. go ahead. Try to pick me up. <laughs> <laughs> now, Will Banks was there, too. Yeah? Yeah, Will Banks was there looking sharp. Dude showed up to, like, the uh, pre-party area for the groom and all the groomsmen and stuff. Or and, uh, reception he, area, is that what they call it? Yeah, I don't know. We had, like, just a hangout area. for. It was a hangout dudes. area, but it was, like, a had a place for like playing pool i mean it was a man cave looking place mm-hmm. like pool cues leather furniture big screen tv nice. like just hanging out and a uh, freaking wilbank shows up and he's dressed better than the freaking bridal party of us <laughs> yeah dude his suit was freaking dapper dude. yeah I, yeah like wow did very well like, good on you wilbank so giving you public props right now for yeah. coming out there and showing out Shouts to Will Banks Taylor, friend of the pod. Well, now that you're back and back in work mode, what's going on, man? If there's one thing that I've noticed right now in the overall landscape of construction and the economy in general, is no one knows what's going on. <laughs> That's what it's like. So tell us, Paul. Put put a bullseye on this target here, Paul. Like what what? Because I'm just looking through a random website right now. You have one, um, I guess one headline that says uh, reports lower profits but higher revenue. Uh, the other one says that um, you know cities are faced with a bigger increase in construction costs. The other one says, and I quote, tougher times ahead for construction as July backlogs fall. But then you scroll down the page and there is a $9.8 billion project going off 1.5, 2.3. Another article talks about all the warehouses they're building all over the country. But what's Did going you on? tell me, this day and age, I hear that you can actually just redefine words to mean what I'm <laughs> yeah. reading, so You tell yeah. me. <laughs> uh, okay. Sorry. We'll get away from that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Shouldn't have went there. Okay. What I think is incredible about this industry right now is that it, unlike when the Great Recession hit and unlike when uh, COVID hit and we artificially shut down the economy, in this case, things are so overheated that coming back a little bit down to earth is probably going to be a good thing. It's going to allow people to catch up on backlog and then just move at a steady pace. I really believe that. I know we all want to sit here and... Uh, be upset about the economy on a personal finance level because inflation's out of control. But on a business level, things really did need to slow down. And so if things are overheated by 20% and they come back to baseline where we actually have the amount of workers we need, we actually have the spots we need and we can start building single family homes or these projects for these commercial projects still going, I think we're going to be all right. I really don't think it's a doom and gloom scenario here. No, I, I like, I like that line of thinking. It depends on whose lens you're, I guess it's perception. I guess it's perception then if you really want to get a true temperature of the market because if you're looking at a spreadsheet, sure, it looks looks bad. I mean, people don't have, people don't have the workforce that they need. Uh, and then there was actual one article that I read. It was specifically talking about the backlog of jobs being decreased, and it was like towards – talking towards that in a negative lens, like, oh, we're losing future jobs. I'm like, man, like you can't handle those jobs. Yeah, you can't handle in the, the job first place. Dude, so, exactly. So what I'm saying is I'm taking the scenic route to get there, but like the guy on the job site is looking like, oh man, thank God we're gonna get a break here. Cause like I'm I still got projects, but like I need a break. And then the guy looking at the spreadsheets, like, look at all these negative numbers. Well I think <laughs> the the whole thing is like how far does this pendulum swing back? Right. And 
so it has swung so far in the demand side of the pendulum that people can't keep up. And so it's coming back. But does that pendulum try to rest somewhere close to equal equilibrium right. down at the bottom? Or does it swing into full recession mode? And then that's where the projects just continue to be stopped and continue not to go anywhere. And you start to lose labor participation rates. But we're just not seeing that right now. And one of the people that kind of calms me down on this is Dr. Basu. Yeah. We had on the program and he puts out his letters and me being me, I'm looking forward to clicking on it thinking, oh yeah, let him destroy this current administration and all their policies, blah, 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 blah. But he like puts the brakes on that. And he says, really, we're looking at two different things. You're looking at a construction environment and then you're looking at your personal finance environment. And on the personal side, it is hurting. It hurts bad because freaking bought eggs yesterday for four dollars and ninety cents what planet are we on right now that eggs cost four dollars and ninety cents a half gallon of milk was two dollars and sixty cents this isn't whole foods people this is a freaking grocery store all right a regular one (laughs) so but then in the construction environment things are still high priced but that's because the demand is so high so we actually need some of that demand to come down and it won't i may not be painful if we can get that deflation it can kind of that demand comes down and it doesn't just swing all the way in the wrong yeah. direction rest at a good point then yeah, yeah. rest at a good point yeah so, so uh, to all of our listeners out there you can subscribe to dr Bossy's Substack, and i would definitely recommend that it's easier it's an easy read too he's a phenomenal writer like as yeah. smart as he is like it's hard to get that uh i guess that mesh of like you know super smart economist, but then also like a good communicator and writer. It's, I mean, read them like they're bedtime stories. They are actually like kind of, (laughs) they're kind of entertaining and he just writes really well. And then you're learning a lot about numbers and the economy and so on and so forth, but it doesn't read like a dissertation. But anyway, speaking of high dollar projects and whatnot, um, have we talked much about like, wind energy and um, w- turbine farms and things like that on this show because that does take an awful lot of concrete for those bases and things. Well, we did. Joey, don't some of your uh, volumetric concrete guys, they're doing wind farms and stuff, doing the bases. Yeah, I forget who it was that did that. Um, but I think we may have talked about it before. I know at the old job, we used to rent uh, one of our portable plants to a guy and that's what they were doing. They'd set up a portable plant, and they would be pouring these windmill uh, bases. And it took, like you said, it takes a lot of concrete. Yeah, for sure. Well, there's this, the largest wind farm in the country, or soon to be largest wind farm in the country, was approved by the Virginia State SEC, essentially, um, for a, a 176 wind turbine farm located 27 miles off the coast of Virginia beach. So, I mean, you know, see a problem, fix a problem. One of the biggest jabs at these wind farms is that they're eyesores and they take up a massive amount of land and so on and so forth. So what do you do? You go out and you build them in the middle of the ocean. So that's what they're doing. And it's going to take a huge amount of infrastructure and a huge amount of concrete for 176 wind turbines. Yeah, that's crazy. It's a $9.8 billion project. My, I mean, I'm old school, and uh, I think if if people were incentivized to invest a fraction of that into natural gas, uh, our price per gallon wouldn't be as high as it is. All right, is, let's, uh, let's the, veer into something else real quick before we get into that. I mean, you know, I guess it's nice that, that people are incentivized to invest that much damn money into something. Uh, Josh, you got your sign ready to throw up on the wall behind yeah, you. Yeah, it's wind Ooh, energy. It's not a conspiracy. It's, it's straight policy. I mean, like we, when you have such a strict policy against one industry and you promote another industry, well, that's where the freaking money's going to go. But that's not really true. <laughs> <laughs> the people that are just listening to this did not, did not get to see the reaction <laughs> that's gonna be that's gonna be a clip 
<laughs> yeah, we're gonna make that a clip for sure. Subscribe to our Instagram, <laughs> Facebook, and YouTube pages because we clip out articles and you you would yeah. see just the look of death that I gave to Paul for him to be such a condescending asshole. <laughs> so, so anyway, the boy yes. woke up. The boy woke up this morning and chose violence. <laughs> Yes, so they are pouring money and subsidies into these wind farms uh, to build them, R&D for them, everything else. Um, but there is a problem with all of these technologies. Is, is they have a life. And we've learned that with solar panels, you know, to recycle the solar panel, there's no recycling of a solar panel. It goes to a landfill, and the heavy metals from those solar panels uh, are leaching into the groundwater. And what we learn about these uh, fiberglass windmill farm blade these windmill blades that are 50 feet long uh there's not really a good use for those either uh, they're actually trying to use those as a puzzle and we discussed that in a previous episode where they're grinding them up to a fine powder trying to as joey says you can put anything into concrete and you just got to call it call it a puzzle just call it that and <laughs> <laughs> i gotta prove you wrong what, what are you gonna do so that's one of the very limited use cases and that's not cheap it's crazy that you could take something that's really literally garbage but they have to throw it away because it's out of service and somebody can not only charge maybe they have to because of how much it costs to safely grind those up because you start grinding up fiberglass and you get all those fine particulates in there and it's really dangerous so it's expensive fine and sharp particulates yeah man not exactly idea but let's talk about something that you are thrilled about and that's 3d printing of concrete oh let's go so uh, one of the companies out there that you might see rocking around on the LinkedIn and other places is Black Buffalo 3D. Well, they have partnered with MAPE, and they have actually created what they're calling their own ink. So it's the mortar that they're going to use as a 3D printer ink. But what I like about it is these guys are trying to standardize it. So if they can produce it all in one place and then shipped the prepackaged material to the job site. And I think that's a good way to do it. I think it's interesting because a lot of places are in concrete, which just like use whatever's local and we're going to try and standardize the binder and then standardize gradations and other reactive properties of the aggregates. And that way we have a consistent product that we're calling concrete. In this case, they're trying to control it as much as possible. And so they have, Shout out Virginia again for the product shout out here. They're going to uh, build 200 single family homes with uh, Black Buffalo's printer and the Mape ink. Are these houses going to be in that like green community or whatever right outside Richmond? It says it's in Pulaski, but uh, and they're calling it Project Virginia. So I don't know if that is in the same thing or not, but it uh, it does have the support of the governor. New governor Glenn Youngkin is kind of behind this, so it could be in that thing. What I also like that they're doing, not that they're just making houses in this new way. What I also like is that just like our guest at uh, Lou I. Curdy, who with 4D, print 4D, uh, Black Buffalo is getting into this too, where they're going to rent their printers to people. Mm-hmm. So I think that's pretty cool that if you're trying to get into the space and the barrier to entry is that you have to buy a $2 million concrete printer, but instead you can go out and rent one, build a subdivision, see how it sells. And they're like, Hey, all right. I, and then you can build it into your model to either go buy your own or keep renting whatever's more feasible. Right. So I think that's pretty baller. It'll probably be set up, you know, similar to like crane rentals or, you know, any other of these huge equipment rentals. Just buy or rent a 3D concrete printer, throw it up on job site. Yeah, I mean, and if they get the same prices for 3D print rentals as they do for crane rentals, then it's a pretty lucrative business that I should probably (laughs) get into because goodness. (laughs) What these guys get for a crane rental per day is wild. But that's that's cool. It's coming. I think it's... It's like any other new technology. I mean, you have your early adopters for sure, but most people it takes a, a certain period of time to kind of get acclimated and, and buy into a new technology or a new practice altogether, like we're talking about here. And 
you know, the construction industry isn't necessarily full of early adopters. So, um, but no, the, the print rental idea sounds really cool. The um, community that I was talking about, Paul, we might be talking about two different things. I was talking about this eco district that they're making uh, right outside Richmond in uh, Henrico County. It's like office spaces, 2000 housing units, uh, 17,000 seat arena, um, just this entire district that is, I guess, like self-sufficient with um, green energy and that kind of stuff. No, nah, new one to me, bro. Yeah, this is like, it's like a 40-acre public park system, all, all kinds of different stuff here, but it must be different. Joey, what say you? Well, uh, I found yet another thing to put in concrete. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> That segues nice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what better what better item to start putting in concrete than all the old COVID masks from the past two years. And that's what these people up in Washington state are doing. They're shredding up these, these uh, disposable masks. And uh, they're, I was originally thinking they were going to use them kind of like microfibers. Um, But it turns out they were kind of blending them with the cement. And I guess they were still, uh, they were still acting as microfibers, but it was just interesting the way they just blended it up and uh, mixed it with the cement. And uh, they said that this uh, this mixture of the cement and the shredded mask actually made a 47% stronger concrete. Uh, so I guess all that extra stuff in there uh, really did something. But it was just one, one more thing to throw in concrete. They said the tiny mask fibers range from five to 30 uh, millimeters in length. And then they add them to cement uh, I guess in a blend of some kind, but yeah, I just thought that was somewhat interesting. You know what I just heard? COVID makes concrete stronger. <laughs> Get <out> COVID creep. <laughs> so the COVID creep, dude, trademark that now. <laughs> yeah, dude. So these are used masks, and the scientists say we've all had it. We just don't know it, which means there's COVID particles latched onto all these fibers, and we know that they survive a long time out in the wild right i don't know do we know that i don't know i'm saying we do so covid lasts forever on all these fibers which means now they're infused dude think about it the spike protein latches on to the cement dude <laughs> dude it's a wild take <laughs> so um, it's a wild take <laughs> that that kind of misinformation will get this episode taken down I was coming through here to see if, Paul, if they just dug these things out of the garbage and used them. <laughs> Surely they would at least sanitize them somehow if no. they were used. No, 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 no. We're going right now. Just think about it. If the virus really was, look, many people are saying it could be lab engineered. And so you would have to think that it's a durable spike protein that can latch on in the amorphous phase. And so now you have A light, B light, and COVID light as your transformation process to the cement hydration. And then it gets slowed down by the gypsum. Boom. COVID creep. Boom. Patented. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Well, I mean, these masks, they're just like polypropylene fibers, right? So, like, there Mm -hmm. is like a a plastic element to that. Yeah, that's how they... Keep saying we got microplastics in it or some nonsense. But yeah, if you crush these up, it'd be fibers. Okay. And they probably did these all this testing on cement cubes or whatever. So we'll see what happens when you put it in real concrete. I I do and I don't want to know how much money some university got in a grant to make to see if this is like feasible or not. Right. I'm in the wrong business. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because there's no way to scale this. You can't be like, all right, guys, we're going to have three garbage cans. This one's for recyclables. This one's for your trash. And this is for your mask. Right. Because then we're going to ship all the masks to the concrete people and they're going to use it. Get out of here. Unreal. Good old capitalism. Oh, want to talk about something else that I don't understand? So there is a safety device out there that is now... I'm uh, pretty sure it's required by the state of California. I could be wrong. Don't 
Don't hang me in the public You're square. off to a flying start here, Paul, with a safety device mandated by California. <laughs> All right. Cheers to that. Here, <laughs> here. Uh, it's called the J cap. And so you have to put caps on the top of any like potential impalement. Like rebar and stuff, yeah. Rebar and stuff like that. Every single one on the whole job site. And you have to do it. And I was curious, how many impalements do we have on construction sites that it's state mandated by law that you have to cover up every possible impalement so that you can do what the study is called, the impact of plausible deniability. God, saying the quiet part right loud now, isn't it? Right? Right in the, <laughs> right in the title. Mr. Safety Man is all out of good ideas. He's like, let's just call it what it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I put the cone up. I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the, the next one is going to be like, we literally can't stop stupid people from doing stupid things. Right. We can look, only m- mitigate liability. that cap. I'm handing the article over to John. I had a physical article here. And it's literally a cap made to fit, like, whatever shape i I mean that's not even rebar whatever that is it's just flat steel but i want to know how many people are falling over and getting stabbed by rebar how many is it 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 cannot be very many no and honestly it only takes one all all it takes is one like the answer to your question could be one um and the problem is and uh, the problem is usually your clumsiest people in the job site are the safety people so (laughs) They're gonna they're gonna look at something dangerous and be like, oh, I could hurt myself on that. Whereas most of us are like, look at something like that and be like, oh, I'm gonna steer clear of that hazard. Nope, <laughs> not Mr. Safety Man. Like, what if I just walked over there at nighttime with no lights and just kind of like fell into that hole? Bro, because for people that don't know, we have uh, a newer concrete lab up here in Baltimore, and like the safety guys are walking us through this lab they did a virtual inspection of our lab and the amount of signs that we had to buy so that people didn't like stick their hand in a tote of something that they don't know what it is oh you better better put a caution sign on that and let people know that that's caustic so how about you not stick your hand in stuff <laughs> like are we two years old joey how often do you tell that to your kids hey uh, don't touch that yeah, because they're two. Josh, if I have to tell yeah. you that as you're walking through the lab, or if I have to tell anybody in this company, look, I don't care if you're an HR, if you're an admin of some kind, working logistics, they all know when you come into the lab, don't shove your hand in a vat of something that you don't know what it is. Yeah, amen, man. Common sense should prevail. However, it doesn't. And it's created an entire um, economy for such people. I mean, can you imagine how much money like Granger or Fastall makes off of just like signs and Dude, stuff? Did you see the size of that Northern Safety site? Yeah, with all those links that I forwarded to to buy all those freaking signs. Yeah, it's an entire industry. It's an entire industry made up of of just people who are unwilling to let common sense prevail. Even more incredible was the options you had on wh- what sign you wanted to buy. Oh no, materials, no. size, colors. You could bedazzle it. <laughs> <laughs> Caution. I mean, why not say caution with some flair? I like it, Joey. Let's put some rhinestone studs on that joker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I don't have a good segue for our guest, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> tell us about our guest here. This is your boy here, Paul. Um, Greg Sager from Delaware Valley Concrete. Tell us a little bit about our guest before we hop into it. Yeah, look, uh, Greg was really, really nice, interesting guy. We appreciate him coming on because this is the like the first time that I've reached out to anybody uh, on LinkedIn that I saw who was contributing to the discussion to the industry in a way that you don't see very often. So we get into it briefly with him, but he's at the VP level of a major concrete producer, ready-mix concrete producer in the Philadelphia area. I guess they go out towards central PA too. But at the VP level, he's constantly on site. And not just like touring with a clean safety vest and shiny shoes, 
the dude's out there at midnight for massive thousand yard, twelve hundred yard pours. He's feeding ice. Like he's doing whatever he has to do to help these guys move forward. And we asked him about that. And I really liked his answer of how he approaches that and how he handles that. It just really insightful. Appreciate him coming on. Bear with him. It, once he loosens up, man, interview is just fantastic. Yeah, no, for sure. Like, you know, we, we hit every corner of the industry for sure. And we even went outside the industry uh, with the, the podcast with uh, the WITS organization. And we talked about, you know, those kind of things. We have academia on here and stuff. But like today's guest is a concrete guy. Uh, talks like one, thinks like one, acts like one, works like one. Took the interview from his truck. He did. <laughs> <laughs> Concrete guy. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. So, so without any further ado, this is Greg Sager from Delaware Valley Concrete. Y'all enjoy. All right. I want to welcome Greg Sager from Delaware Valley Concrete. Thank you for joining us, sir. Hello. <laughs> All right. So, I reached out to Greg. Uh, full disclosure, we met five minutes ago on this interview as we loaded it up. Uh, but I reached out to Greg because I uh, started seeing his LinkedIn feed. Some people that I'm connected with were liking and reposting things Greg was sharing. And what caught my eye is that Greg, as a VP at Delaware Valley Concrete, he's constantly on night pours. And as we're catching him right now, we're recording this at like 10 in the morning. He's already 10 hours into his shift. He was out at the plants at midnight and working with those guys. And I got to ask, Greg, what on earth has you out doing night pours at this point in your life? Well, I kind of don't like to ever forget where I come from and where I started in this racket. I'm also in charge of the maintenance program. And so if I come out at night, it doesn't take away from the daytime stuff that goes on. So if there's a breakdown during the day, uh, the likelihood of me getting involved in that is slim to none anyway, but I don't like taking away manpower to do these night pours when basically you're just a watchdog. And so you're just walking around the plant, making sure everything's going right. And, you know, I can come in and do that. And, um, I don't have the kids at home anymore, that kind of thing. And so I got more freedom than these guys do. And, uh, it just it just works out in the end. Yeah, so the pictures of the night pours kind of spoke to our heart because we're out here building a lot of these big box stores, the Walmarts, the Amazons, the UPSs, and all the concrete getting poured on those jobs are at night. So we we really felt that. We saw, we saw all these posts where you're just dumping ice in in the middle of the night and you're having breakdowns in the middle of the night and guys are pouring 1,000 yards every single night. Man, we really felt that. And... You know, there's a time in our lives we're looking forward to not being on every night pour anymore. <laughs> and so yeah. when I see a guy like you paying homage to that, uh, really spoke to us. I, I really enjoy the night pours because it's the same thing all night long. Uh, when I started out batching in this stuff 30 years ago, it was that's how it was. And, you know, it was one of them things you just turn the radio up and nobody bothered you and you just threw the concrete in the truck and let the drivers go out the door and it was a harmonious activity. Well, you mentioned when you got started 30 or more years ago in this business, uh, am I wrong? Did you start out as a mixer driver? Yep. I was a mixer driver and then, uh, helped out around the plants during the winter and with the welding projects and like all that. I was always a guy that wanted to be involved in learning and everything. So that helped get me to where I'm at. I never turned down a chance to operate a piece of equipment or I was just up in a high reach earlier today to take the ice machine back down apart. So, uh, it's just, I just love being a part of making sure things happen and just helps with the camaraderie that you're a part of this stuff and that you get respect because people, you know, know that you were a part of this and you know what goes on and that, uh, you're not just a guy carrying around a clipboard and having a clean, hard hat and uh, uh, reflective vest. Joey, is he speaking to you right there? Yeah, yeah I have felt everything that Greg has said. Uh, Greg, in a past life, uh, before Active Minerals, I was they called us the, the plant maggots uh, because we crawled around on the portable plants and uh, we'd 
kept those things up and running and I was on the paving train and doing everything and um, your early days uh, reminded me of my past job where it was my first job out of college and I did literally everything they told me to from sweeping the floor batching concrete driving the mixer truck uh, you name it so yeah you're speaking my language right now you were talking about the night pours one thing I kind of wanted to ask you and you mentioned the ice and everything else is uh, that's is that kind of the deciding factor? I guess, is the heat the deciding factor on whether or not you're pouring concrete at night, or what are the other factors going in there? Well, we're doing a bridge deck right now, and uh, that was the deciding factor. If it was uh, not the AAA bridge deck, it, like uh, we're going to be pouring a, a Class A later this week, and uh, there you're, you're allowed uh, up to 90 degrees. So our concrete temps without the ice, we're under that. So we won't be adding ice that. So I won't be a part of that pour later this week. And you said you were using an ice machine. So can you talk to us about that? Because usually in our past life, ice meant you were running down to the package store. Well, that that's what it really is. Uh, like Tonight it was worse because we had to put 30 pounds per yard in. And uh, the ice machine was from uh, Semcold. They call it Semcold, but it's Semco out of Texas. Uh, we had rented one from uh, S.J. Anderson in uh, Philadelphia, and we really liked it, so we went and bought one. Since we have a central mixer at this location, we had to shoot it into the mixer, so we're about 40 foot away between the height and the length away from the machine to get it to fly up there. So it's ice cubes, but if you uh, have like a full bag of ice that kind of melted and then refroze, it creates a bridge in there, so then you got a guy chopping it as it's going down inside the machine, and you know it shreds it up there and sends it up there pretty violently. But uh, it, it takes about about a minute, twelve seconds to get it up into the plant. So it takes a, a minute to get the ice into the plant, and you're pouring a thousand yards a night. I mean that, or maybe not that many for this bridge deck, but uh, seems like you had a lot of lo- lot of loads going out when you're on there. So that does add some time, but it's not as much time as chipping it. Well, tonight was 170 yards. The other night we did 260 or 280, I think it was, and that that was a killer. Because it's still, you got two guys in the truck, and then we went and bought one of them, uh, I call them a trash dumpster that automatically dumped themselves once you release the lever. And that can hold probably 40 bags of ice if I needed it to. And we just run that with a forklift. And then we just hit the lever and we dumped that whole bucket into the ice machine. It's still a four-person job, even though you're not using a conveyor or whatever, but it's still labor-intensive. It's kind of not what I'm... I would rather do nitrogen, but I have horror stories with nitrogen too, so... Well, give us a horror story of the nitrogen. Well, I just... I've seen fins get cut off. (laughs) So, you know... it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah you have guys that um you know they're not paying attention and you like i just saw a video earlier on uh linkedin or facebook or whatever it was somebody was holding the wand instead of having like a stationary injection thing that you could just get it and you know there's a lot of of uh, like a dry ice uh thing in the air and you know you can't breathe that stuff in and it's just for what we're doing, the size bridge we have, it's, it, it's okay with the ice. All right, not quite big enough to need to install the liquid nitrogen stuff. Right. Greg, before you had these uh, ice machines and everything, did you guys just have to chuck those bags of ice uh, in the trucks manually? I remember I've seen those little platforms. It was almost like a slump rack, except it was an ice rack. And uh, the only thing that thing was used for is for one guy to get up there and chuck bags of ice into the truck. Is that how uh, you guys used to have to do it? Uh, In my past life, we were able to, a couple plants that I had, we had room. They were enclosed, but we had room for the charge conveyor going up into the mixer. So we were able to stage ice inside and still throw it up on the belt kind of thing. And, uh, I mean, that's all right to do it that way, but then you're working with a live conveyor. But, yeah, it's it's either you throw it in from the bucket or some staged area or, or something, and it's uh, it's never fun, bagged ice. It was never fun being the guy to chuck anything into the truck, whether it's fiber bags or anything else. That's a really tough job. We were 
on an Amazon out in Washington State, and they were paying two guys $25 an hour each, and their only job all night long was to throw fiber in the concrete truck. These guys were climbing up down the trucks all night long with, like, garbage buckets full of fiber to chuck in these trucks. And they were doing, like, 1,000, 1,200 yards a night, working those boys to death. Yeah, I've, I've had steel fiber jobs where we were staged on the job. Once the truck was empty, you drove back through the scaffolding, and you had two guys up there putting steel fibers in the truck to go back to the plant to get loaded again. So the fiber was going in? Before we left the job. Yeah, before we left the job. Wow. The customer bought the fiber, and it was like an 1,800-yard job. So the just uh, it was 1,800 yards a night we were doing. So the customer had bought the fiber, so it was on their job site. Oh, my gosh. 1,800 yards a night. It's moving. It's a lot of mud. Yep. So you start out doing like Joey, just every job. You run around learning everything you can, and that starts out as a truck driver. It just starts maintenance, driving anything you can, loaders, everything. Um, And then you got a couple twists and turns, I'm sure. Talk us through... How does somebody advance through this industry? What did your career look like? I wound up uh, from being a driver and, and even just spending time in your own personal vehicle to drive home from work. Uh, road rage can get to you. And I was getting to the point anymore. It was 1999. I stopped driving truck full time and uh, I was, I had enough. I was probably going to, do something I shouldn't be doing to somebody on the road. And I decided it was time to get off the road. And uh, I approached the company I was with then, and I was trying to get a sales position. And uh, they said, well, how about you go into dispatch first? Uh, If anybody's been a part of dispatch, that's a sight unseen there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So you said okay to that? Or you said no, I'm going to hurt somebody in there too. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was in uh, dispatch for five years. I assistant manager, scheduler, the order entry, the whole thing in there. And, and then I went out to, instead of being like a relief batch guy, I went out to take on a plant full time. And then I advanced from there to taking on two plants and then being um, a production manager kind of thing. So when you were in dispatch, it wasn't, nice and easy like it is now i mean you see the new systems that are out there now it's actually not as bad back then though imagine you had two phones one on each ear yelling at a driver on this phone taking an order on this phone got it nobody needs you're writing hand tickets ripping them off sticking them on a board and just hoping things went right i mean it's a madhouse out there how in the world did you put up with that for five years well actually we went central dispatch in 1998 already. And, uh, at first we like, we flooded the office with like nine, 10 people to handle. We also had a stone quarry. So we were processing the stone tickets through there and all that stuff. So it was, uh, and then over time we really concentrated on the craft of the dispatch department and, uh, got it down to four people. And one guy just shipped trucks all day, and that was at for six plants at the time. Uh, once we built bigger plants, we uh, sized down to four plants to handle the same area and more yardage. And uh, it just, we found out that the more information you get from a customer on that initial phone call, the less callbacks you got to do, and less mistakes and you get customers still to this day that just want to get off the phone and they give you a half an address and then you know you're sitting there and with us being outside of philadelphia you know there's so many main streets and chestnut streets and everything else like that and without an exact zip code or an east or west you're sending trucks everywhere and they're not at the right place yeah i always envision or i have seen pretty much every dispatch room except maybe when you get down to like the teeny tiny satellite plants or a teeny tiny mom and pop plant where they can do dispatch and batching and everything else kind of in the same room there with one or two guys that dispatch room is the war room 
and it was just like Paul yep. said, there's stuff stuck all over the wall. There are, uh, they've gotten better. There, there are monitors everywhere now, uh, and they all show different things, and there's cameras everywhere because they're keeping track of what trucks are on the yard and everything else. And in um, some of those, it's just a, a, a heavy smell of cigarette smoke, coffee, and various <laughs> other nicotine substances that keep people alive throughout the whole shift uh, because uh, those guys run on different fuels. You know, dispatch guys are different. Batch guys are different. But uh, it's it's all stressful, and I've never seen mm-hmm. a dispatch or a batch guy with without bags under his eyes because it is wild out there. Oh, yeah, when I was a scheduler, I used the, the shipper – would always look at the schedule for the next day and he'd turn around and say to me, he goes, how do you expect me to get this out? And I'd be like, it's 85% luck. <laughs> That's what I say. <laughs> I thought Joey was going to say he's never met a dispatcher or a batch guy that had hair. Right. Like, well, that's kind of rude. Yeah. <laughs> it's usually fading. I mean, there, there's no way you keep a full head of hair with those jobs. Thankfully, I got out of the that side of the industry uh after a few years uh, i've still got my my thick head of hair and i hope to keep it a while and greg you said you're outside of philadelphia where exactly are you based uh we're just about seven miles north of center city or in hatboro pennsylvania is the main office uh, we got eight plants total we run seven every day um the one plant we don't run is kind of in a neighborhood and they're a little restricted on the hours we can run and so we just run it every now and then to make sure that we have a use still with the township and everything. But we're all the way out to Harrisburg and, and outside of Philadelphia. Oh, wow. I didn't realize you got all the way to Harrisburg. Coming to Delaware Valley Concrete was a, a change of pace for me because when I was at Brooks Products Corporation outside of Reading, we had plants that weren't with it. Were, we averaged about 45 minutes apart so that we didn't have plants on top of plants. Well, with Delaware Valley Concrete, we've got plants in close proximity, uh, which helps in cross shipping. And if we have jobs that require more yards per hour than what one plant can do, we can easily do it with uh, another plant close by. But it was a change of pace for me because I'd be like, you know, they'd say to me, well, if a plant breaks down, what are we going to do? We're going to run this plant or that plant. I'm like, well, where I came from, if the plant broke down in the middle of a fork, we were done. <laughs> well, you, you talk about plants being on top of each other, being a benefit of sorts, because you can kind of supply the same job at high volumes out of two different plants. You do need that volume and being around the Philadelphia area, a major city, yeah, you've been there for quite some time now. Can you talk about the, the changes that uh, the construction industry has gone through uh, in the recent past as far as like the influx of construction both residential and commercial Are, have you guys been just inundated with orders lately are you starting to slow down a little bit um you know what what's the workload like for you guys right now uh for me covid kind of rocked us a little bit i mean we kept working but they um i don't think we ever really recovered to the full head of steam that we had prior to that and now with the prices of everything going through the roof uh, there's projects that are taken off that were put on hold but uh, like we don't have what I would say a lot of guarantees out there even coming in for winter and you know it's it makes us have to pull the reins back some um, like ordering new trucks and plant parts and you know any kind of upgrades we want to do and and that's because the market's kind of unstable right now and uh with a residential to build a home now is you know two hundred thousand dollars more than it was a couple years ago it's crazy so it that has an effect and and for us we are uh we're a residential company i mean we take on these warehouses sometimes but it can have a negative impact on our daily orders with the, you know, the, the 10 and 20 yard people that are used to us being there all the time. And, you know, if you can't get out your first round orders, you're never going to make it up the rest of the day. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, we, we've seen that, uh, you know, there, it's a huge uh, wait-and-see mentality that, that we've seen all over the place. And, and we're, we're kind of national. We get around. We spend a lot of time in the eastern time zone, but even in the Midwest and down around the Gulf, the Gulf states. And without throwing any names out there, we've seen people that haven't been able to get the cement that they've been promised. Uh, we have people with rock shortages, sand shortages, looking for different sources of materials. Um, how are you guys on that front up there around the, the mid-Atlantic Philadelphia area? Well, for us, uh, we're, as far as cement goes, we're not in bed with any particular company. Um, we kind of spread it out because back in the eighties, the owner was stranglehold to, uh, so many loads a day because the way the shortages were going on and the massive building overseas and stuff that he he'll never forget that when one company decides to say you're only going to get four loads of cement a day well i got at that time he had three plants and uh, how's that going to work out you know i got customers to serve too and 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 for us the the rock um we got a lot of quarries that are aging themselves out and then with the blacktop industry half inch is always a problem because blacktop, they'll they'll put you uh, down to one or two loads a day on half-inch stone because of all the needs for the, the blacktopping going on, especially with some of these roads that are getting repaved. So that's a problem. Cement we're all right on. Sand, we have our own sand quarry down in uh, New Jersey. So um, we're... And even that became a little bit of a problem because... At first, we were the number one customer for that, for the sand pit. And then they went and created their own customer base. And it's like, whoa, you need to not take so much sand because we got a supplier or people we're selling to. So this is one of my pet peeves about this <laughs> business. All right. Vertical integration sounds great on paper. And then you put it into practice. And what you find out is as the ready mix, it's always, it always falls on ready mix. You're vertically integrated with uh, an aggregate operation or cement operation or whatever, and it always ready mix always gets the short end of the stick, all right. And all of a sudden, you have to buy from your old sister company, and you get the worst price, and you get cut off first. Absolutely aggravates me to no end. Yeah, the former company I worked for was bought out by somebody else, and that that they're big in stone, and they won't cut the price on stone for their own ready mix company. <laughs> so it's like, it's crazy. And yeah, Josh, I do feel better. You got the vent today. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, you've seen pretty much every aspect of the ready mix industry. It seems like you know, from where you started to where you are now, is there any area in particular that kind of stands out, be it, you know, technology or technology in trucks, technology in batching, material quality is there anything that kind of sticks out that was like a big jump uh for the industry as far as being more efficient or providing better concrete i think the dispatching end of it was one of the things and the batching part with uh like touchscreen batching now or, or whatever that that has uh helped tremendously but the one aggravating thing for me is the amount of admixtures that you could have at a plant now that when I go to build a batch system uh my last one I built was two in 19 and I said to the guy I want 14 admixtures set up on the screen and he says why do you want so much I says because I know we're going to use them up in another two or three years that you know for different jobs it's the you get these road patch jobs where you were down on 95 in the middle of the night and they want to drive on it in six hours. The amount of stuff that goes into it is ridiculous. Oh, he, did he I just attack us? Did he just attack us? I can't say anything to that. Yeah. We're, we're usually that last, we're usually that number 14 uh, slot there when we, when we pop into a plant. <laughs> Piggybacking on other lines. Like, is anybody else going in at one ounce per pulse? We'll let this uh, yeah. piggyback yeah. on that one. Right. But uh, yeah, Greg, you're right. It's basically you're uh, you're basically a bartender mixing up cocktails with some of these mixes because you got half a dozen ad mixtures going into some of these things. It's wild. But I think the trucks 
like we're all front discharges. Uh, I'm not a fan of them uh, because the funny thing about a front is, is that uh, you can drive into the job, but you unload the concrete. Nobody cares anymore about you. So you got to back out all by yourself. And then you see beams or box culverts and stuff all getting driven over. When I drove rears. You know, when you backed into the job, somebody was there with you and you could see it drive back out, you know, and these fronts are, they're really trying to lighten them up now with plastic tanks and the tanks are getting glued on and the glue's not sticking. And we went through a lot of issues to, with the first year of the trucks we bought last year with some crazy stuff happening, but um, they've been good about it. So as far as the warranties and stuff, so we're uh, bought some more this year. Those uh those front discharge trucks, they're always the culprits at a red light when you see a pile of con- dried concrete sitting right there in the middle of the intersection. That was probably a ten or eleven yard sloppy front discharge load <laughs> that you had to slam on the brakes and concrete went everywhere. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. That's hilarious. Hey, why are they? trying to lighten up the truck i mean because in order to lighten it up to get another yard of concrete in the drum i mean you got to lighten it up by four thousand pounds are they getting that kind of weight reduction or is there another reason to be lightening the truck well with the 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 fronts years ago they were coming in around a 31 32,000 pounds and then they started slowly creeping up and they're 34 36,000 pounds we as a company don't load more than 10 yards on a truck uh, just because of weight. Even though you get aluminum wheels on these trucks, aluminum chutes, and as as light as stuff as you can on aluminum fenders. And uh, it's just a little bit of buildup in these trucks. And it don't take much to get them over to 73, 280 for Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's right. Speaking of Pennsylvania, and Joey was touching on some advancements. One of the things that's coming out is e-ticketing. Are you guys looking at transition to that? Has that already started? Uh, we have t- uh, transferred over to e-ticketing. Some places it was okay. Out west, it wasn't okay. And uh, like with the state job, we're printing out a ticket for that truck and for the customer. And uh, But uh, we're emailing every these invoices out with the tickets every day. Like as soon as the day's done, like we got a mass email gets sent out for the customers for their tickets. And so people are still hanging on that they want a physical ticket. But uh, in the end, as far as digital, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it was a growing pains at first, but uh, it's taken off. Because Joey and I were in Alabama uh, last week, week before, and uh, we were, yeah, it was last week. And they've gone entirely to e-ticketing. In fact, the guy in the batch house, he didn't have one of those little, those old printers that come out. You got to yeah. rip the little sides off of it. And it well, he, it wasn't in the batch house, but he pointed. He goes, well, I got it in a box over there for the day that this e-ticketing thing stops working. I still got the cables. I can hook it up. But we asked him, you know, hey, how'd it go? And he said, all the way leading up to the e-ticketing process, Everybody was hooting and hollering, pitching a fit. The state was essentially dragging them, kicking and screaming to do it. But he said once they flipped that switch and went e-ticketing, it was within a couple of weeks. It was completely smoothed out, and it's been smooth sailing ever since. So I hope uh, you end up with the same experience here. Well, when you're like, we're trying what we've been. We've been doing 420, 430,000 yards the last couple of years. And uh, when you're, when you're keeping tickets for seven years in some basement somewhere, <laughs> you need two days just to clear out one year's a ticket, carrying them out of a basement that you've been storing. And, and now that's all gone. You don't have that anymore. Could you imagine the poor guy that would have to dig through that? And the only reason he's digging through that is because there's a lawsuit. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody wants to know what was batched in that concrete 18 months ago. That's falling apart now. No, I was that guy multiple times. <laughs> The basement's okay. And it's when they're in the attic is when it's not okay because it's usually July when they want them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You ever find any critters living in it? 
Oh, you always find a surprise or two. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't imagine any of those records were in order either. What a horrible assignment. But well, we we always have a segment on on this podcast where we ask our guests to give us uh, the craziest thing they've ever seen on a job site. Like, what's your shock story? And we'll get to that eventually. But new segment here. What's the what's the craziest thing you've seen while you were looking through old batch tickets? No. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times it's, uh I I'm sure you guys have seen it but you get people that like sign a celebrity's name a driver will do it because there's nobody there to give the ticket to so they'll just sign some celebrity's <laughs> name <laughs> and you see a lot of Elvis Presleys and you know things like that for signatures on tickets and it's like this isn't right guys you can't be doing this and and, and me being a driver at one time I did it you know and it's um, <laughs> what celebrity did you channel as you signed this ticket you thought nobody would ever see like don juan or whatever that hawaiian singer was down there years ago nice. yeah you and don juan man I, yep, <laughs> yep. <laughs> look exactly the same it kind of reminds me of uh paul do you remember i don't know if you remember it uh but i do remember there were a couple times in college where like uh, I think it was in, I forget what building it was in, but they would like try to get you to sign up for a credit card or something like that. And if you signed up for a credit card or signed up for whatever, you'd get like a t-shirt or they'd give you like, I don't know, some like little prize. And so you'd always make up just some random celebrity name and the address would be 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and it'd be, you know, Joe Blow <laughs> at mtsu.edu and you'd fill out just all this nonsense just so you could get whatever free garbage that they were giving away it kind of reminds me of that it was hard times back then man well going back to that ticket signing i i would this one customer when i was driving we'd be late for it because he'd be trying to pour a wall at 2 30 in the afternoon which is not the right time to fit something like that in because you're waiting for an inspector or something you know and it's always screwed up and and he was really mad. He's like, oh, you're late again. You're late again. What's the excuse now? And I said, there is no excuse. I says, it's your fault why we're late. He's like, why is it my fault? I says, because you keep calling us for concrete. If you want concrete on time, don't call us. So uh, those are the moments <laughs> in where, I've had where I wasn't a representative <laughs> for the company. <laughs> oh, I, I, we almost made t-shirts for this podcast that said trucks on the way because every time someone would call the batch house want to know where the truck was and you're you know staring out the window watching it get loaded and you're like oh it's on the way <laughs> it's done left yeah it, the funny part was uh, it was like three years ago the owner's wife was in dispatch because she's good at that and she told the customer that, oh, we had a plant breakdown. Well, somebody called me, one of the drivers called me and says, do we have a plant broke down? I'm like, no. And then, so I'm like, what's going on? I walked into dispatch and I said, well, where's the plant broke down? We don't. I just had to tell the customer that. And I'm like, don't ever tell somebody my plants broke down. I take pride in my plants not breaking down. Golly. Well, that, and man, we operate in this group here we operate on don't ever lie to a concrete guy because they will yeah. never ever forget that you did not tell them the truth and they will never trust another word that ever comes out of your mouth yeah i used to get go out in a job and a guy would say to me well why was your tire how come your tire went flat i'm like what are you talking about they don't know flat tire mm. uh dispatch yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh man well Greg, we really appreciate you coming on here, taking time. For those who can't see, uh, Greg was kind enough to pull off on the side of the road <laughs> and uh, complete this uh, this interview for us here. But we can't let you go without asking the most important question of all, and that is, what is the craziest thing you've ever seen on a job site? I was running a rear discharge. I was a conveyor operator for a while, and I go to this footer, and... Uh, the owner of this concrete company, who they poured residential 35,000 yards a year, and they're really good at it. They're big in walls and footers and stuff. And uh, it was a standard house, nothing fancy. And it was the hole was full of water. It was three foot full of water. 
And he's standing there with a print in his pocket, and he pulls it out, and he says, how tight are you? I said, I'm, you know, like a one, one, two-inch lump. He says, good, we're going to pour this footer. So we poured a stack footer in the middle of this flooded wall foundation, and I was I was floored because I was used to pouring footers with boards, and he says, we ain't going to put no boards up. There ain't no point in it. And I, I know that development, and that house is still standing, and that was like 27 years ago. <laughs> it was it was the first home that they put in there. It wound up being the model home, and I know somebody's living in it now. It's like, this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> the model how ironic is it's the model home at a certain, uh, water at a certain point ratio, when the, you get a hole full of water I, I mean i wouldn't even put any water in the mix it would just been rock sand and cement <laughs> yeah. rolling up to that yeah. job site and all the water all the water would get in it when you put it in the hole oh my gosh that was pretty good brother good i i appreciated this is our first story in a while that didn't have any naked men or substance abuse human waste just a good solid construction jab i appreciate that greg thank you so much uh, you're welcome i could have told you stories of putting never sees on guys hard hats especially guys like me that are bald now and they have a silver streak across their forehead they didn't know it you know good old days <laughs> Oh man, the the hard part about putting never sees on stuff as a practical joke is you can always tell who did it, because I I've yeah. never opened up a can of never sees without getting half of it all over me, looking like the Tin Man afterwards. So that's a, correct. That's a that's a slippery slope. <laughs> Gives new meaning to like caught red-handed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> caught silver-handed. Yeah. Uh, that's good stuff, Greg. We really appreciate your time, man. Um, you know, we have all kinds of guests on this on this podcast from academia to you know, all, all over the place, but we truly appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk to real concrete guys who are out there doing it every day. So we, we definitely appreciate it and hope we can talk to you again soon. Absolutely. It was fun. Thanks, Greg. Have a great day. You too, guys. Thank you. All right. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Ad 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. As we stated earlier, it's always great to talk to a a concrete guy through and through, and Greg is certainly that. And, uh, it, was a, it was a good conversation, and we hope you all enjoyed it as well. As always, keep up to date with us on our social media pages. That's uh, Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel, and always be on the lookout for new episodes. Tell a friend about us. Give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, like we said, be on the lookout for the next one. As always, y'all be good.